If you can read, you can take great pictures with the Ansco Lancer camera. If it's from Ansco, you know it's A+. What happens when we take a photograph? What happens when we capture light on paper, in emulsion, or in pixels, and look across a gulf of time at these fragments of the past? What gets in the frame, and what lies just beyond? What occurs when photos mingle with the memory, distorting and recasting ourselves or others in roles permanently placed, fixed, in another time? From the Stonehill College English Department, in conjunction with the Digital Humanities and Creative Writing programs, it's the Electro Library. A podcast, a literary neural network, a philosophical space-time remix, a kaleidoscope of consciousness on electromagnetic waves. Each episode explores a single theme across time, cultures, and disciplines. The Electro Library, a cabinet of curiosities for your ears. Episode 4, Photography, Part 2. A photographic quarterly, Camera Work, was published by Alfred Stieglitz shortly after the turn of the century. The photographs, drawings, and articles by Stieglitz and his friends signaled photography's coming of age in America. Photography is an art, a step in learning and an insight into the life and the things that surround us. Stieglitz described his own work as the exploration of the familiar. He said, I have found my subjects within 60 yards of my door. He favored any means that might free the photographer's whole energies so that they could be channeled in the direction of the decision, the picture itself. They jumped from the burning floors. One, two, a few more, higher, lower. The photograph halted them in life and now keeps them above the earth, toward the earth. Each is still complete with a particular face and blood well hidden. There's enough time for hair to come loose, for keys and coins to fall from pockets. They're still within the air's reach, within the compass of places that have just now opened. I can do only two things for them. Describe this flight and not add a last line. Photograph from September 11 by Wislava Samborska, translated by Claire Kavanaugh. The line between the reality that is photographed because it seems beautiful to us and the reality that seems beautiful because it has been photographed is very narrow. The minute you start saying something, oh, how beautiful, we must photograph it, you are already close to the view of the person who thinks that everything that is not photographed is lost, as if it had never existed, and that therefore, in order really to live, you must photograph as much as you can. And to photograph as much as you can, you must either live in the most photographable way possible, or else consider photographable every moment of your life. The first course leads to stupidity, the second to madness. The taste for the spontaneous, natural, lifelike snapshot kills spontaneity, drives away the present. 
Photographed reality immediately takes on a nostalgic character, of joy fled on the wings of time, a commemorative quality, even if the photograph was taken the day before yesterday. And the life that you live in order to photograph it is already, at the outset, a commemoration of itself. Italo Calvino, The Adventures of a Photographer. Upon the beach at violet blue noon, in a vacational Elysium, a striped bather took a picture of his happy family. And very still stood his small naked boy, and his wife's smile, in ardent light and sandy bliss, plunged as in silver. And by the striped man directed at the sunny sand, blinked with a click of its black eyelid, the camera's ocellus. That bit of film imprinted all it could catch, the stirless child his radiant mother, and a toy pail, and two beach spades, and some way off a bank of sand, and I, the accidental spy, I in the background have been also taken. Next winter, in an unknown house, grandmother will be shown an album, and in that album there will be a snapshot, and in that snapshot I shall be, my likeness among strangers, one of my August days, my shade they never noticed. My shade they stole in vain. The Snapshot, Vladimir Nabokov. I've discovered a camera, the Vivitar. It's a pocket camera with a great idea. The electronic flash is built in, see? Now my flash pictures don't have to be blurry or fuzzy because somebody moved. There's a sharp Vivitar picture for you. And here's the Vivitar. Small, inexpensive, so easy. Nothing to attach. The flash is built in. If you want sharp pictures, this has got to be your camera. The Vivitar. If the public photograph contributes to a memory, it is to the memory of an unknowable and total stranger. The camera relieves us of the burden of memory. It surveys us like God, and it surveys for us. Yet no other God has been so cynical, for the camera records in order to forget. My name is Jessica Costello. I'm a senior psychology major, and I'm going to read a poem that I wrote about a group photo of some of my friends and myself from last year. This poem is called To the Girl in the Photo, dated May 8, 2018. You were behind the camera, a puzzle piece that didn't fit, until the last second when someone said you deserved to get in the photo too and you were shoehorned into the side of the shot next to the priest and afterthought. It looked like you should go there, but you didn't. So after that whole process, maybe you shouldn't. Now this group picture is a jigsaw of frozen mixed emotions. Emily stands like Switzerland, a barrier between a former couple who don't talk anymore. Matt's worn the same shirt every Tuesday for three years. And you, you with your black dress, your hair is a mess. You smile so big your eyes disappear. 
your feet squished into shapeless sandals. Fingers crossed no one notices if you forgot to shave your legs. Especially not that guy over there with the Han Solo socks, who makes you blush with a glance and a stupid joke. You're too shy to flirt, so as the night goes on, you mostly stare at your phone and giggle like an airhead at puns that got tired last year. In a few weeks, you'll wonder in what world he made you nervous, because someone who ignores your text doesn't deserve it. Later, you'll return to this room that has become a bit of home, with its familiar retro wood paneling, paintings of watercolor boats, and the out-of-tune piano whose E-flat key is stuck, and an uncertain smell that takes you back in time to a place you can't quite name. But you won't be the same. You'll cut your hair so it frames your face. Your friendships won't feel forced. The puzzle you finished got glued to treasure forever, and your scraggly sapling will bear sweet fruit. The ex-couple will come back together. I guess they're friends now. You prayed for life and got lost. You prayed for love and got yourself. You got me. your left hand out. Place the camera across the palm. Grasp the rear of the viewfinder cap. Pull the camera into its erect position. To load, press and the door opens. Take the 10 picture film pack and push it all the way in. Close the door and automatically the cover sheet will be ejected from the camera. Now rest the camera against your chin. Bring your eye to the viewing lens. Place your thumb on the back of the lens board and your finger on the focusing wheel. Rolling left or right, to bring the scene into sharp focus from infinity down to 10 inches. When the correct moment comes, press the red electric shutter button, holding the camera steady until the film is out. One November evening, shortly after my mother's death, I was going through some photographs. I had no hope of finding her. I expected nothing from these photographs. However often I might consult such images, I could never recall her features. I could not even say about these photographs that I loved them. I was not sitting down to contemplate them. I was sorting them, but none seemed to me really right, neither as a photographic performance nor as a living resurrection of the beloved face. If I were ever to show them to friends, I could doubt that these photographs would speak. And here the essential question first appeared. Did I recognize her? According to these photographs, sometimes I recognized a region of her face, a certain relation of nose and forehead, the movement of her arms, her hands. I never recognized her except in fragments, which is to say that I missed her being and that therefore I missed her altogether. It was not she, and yet it was no one else. I would have recognized her among thousands of other women, yet I did not find her. Photography compelled me to perform a painful labor, straining toward the essence of her identity. I was struggling among images partially true and therefore totally false. To say, confronted with a certain photograph, that's almost the way she was, was more distressing than to say, confronted with another, that's not the way she was at all. 
There I was, alone in the apartment where she had died, looking at these pictures of my mother, one by one, under the lamp, gradually moving back in time with her, looking for the truth of the face I had loved, and I found it. The photograph was very old. The corners were blunted from having been pasted into an album. The sepia print had faded, and the picture just managed to show two children standing together at the end of a little wooden bridge in a glassed-in conservatory, what was called a winter garden in those days. My mother was five at the time, her brother seven. He was leaning against the bridge railing along which he had extended one arm. She, shorter than he, was standing a little back, facing the camera. You can tell that the photographer had said, step forward a little so we can see you. She was holding one finger in the other hand, as children often do, in an awkward gesture. The brother and sister, united, as I knew, by the discord of their parents, who were soon to divorce, had posed side by side, alone, under the palms of the winter garden. I studied the little girl and at last rediscovered my mother, the distinctness of her face, the naive attitude of her hands, the place she had docilely taken without either showing or hiding herself, and finally her expression, which distinguished her like good from evil, from the hysterical little girl, from the simpering doll who plays at being a grown-up. All this constituted the figure of a sovereign innocence. All this had transformed the photographic pose into that untenable paradox which she had nonetheless maintained all her life, the assertion of a gentleness. In this little girl's image, I saw the kindness which had formed her being immediately and forever. and what I've later experienced with my child and with friends that you can catch the moment without telling them and get it the moment after I was always an idiot with cameras I've suddenly been introduced how you can manage a camera, see the picture immediately and be an idiot and be able to get this result which for me is a revelation An ex of mine once made a snarky comment about how nostalgic I was, how my writing seemed perhaps overly preoccupied with the past in a way that glorified it. I don't think nostalgic is quite right. I don't long for the childhood I lived. I long for the one that could have been. One that was parallel. It's like if I could go back to that time and have my adult self there as my guide to let me know that I made it out then maybe I could have had more freedom to be a kid. Recently, I was given some photos of myself as a child that I had never seen before from different times in my life. Some with my parents, some by myself, some with other children whose names I no longer know. Some are pictures of when my parents were still together, before I was two, a time I don't remember, except for the blurry sensory details of tree stumps, the taste of snow peas picked from the vine, and the feel of my mother's skirt. 
These photographs were in a box of my father's things that someone else had for many years. That person died. My father got the box. Maybe this person didn't have to die for me to get these photos, but I won't deny that there could be something literary in that. Maybe there was something else that could have happened. Maybe if my father hadn't left the box with them in the house we all used to live in, I'd have known more of myself in those years. But a photo from the past doesn't mean what it does now without the context of the present. I spent the better part of this year in therapy uncovering some of my time in that house with my father and the person who had these photos and who has now died and the situation that led me to live with them. Somehow it's harder to write about them now that they are no longer here. Hard especially because they didn't like when I had written about them before. Hard because, for the past 15 years, I had not been able to talk to them for reasons I do not wish to write about here. These photos, new to me, showed me things I had never seen. On the back of a third grade picture, there is an inscription, with love, in my crude but careful letters. A photo of me in a cloth diaper and a white undershirt next to a wooden farm fence, standing in tall golden grass, and a sunflower bending above me, maybe 18 months old, an age I had treasured in my own son not long ago. Well looking, he asks, what am I doing here, mama? That's me, I reply, my heart warmed by the connection between ourselves, and happy he sees himself in me, despite everyone saying he and his dad are twins. Another picture of my mom holding me, faded in color, magentas and warm pink hues taking over, a cigarette in one of her hands, me in the other, leaning against a car, some of my dad in denim cutoffs holding my hand as I toddle. My mother in jeans and Mary Janes and a punk magazine t-shirt on a motorcycle before I was born. A thumbtack hole from where my dad said he had pinned it on his wall. Their friends in long silk scarves, billowing hair and sleeves, hats, denim. Faded golden pink or black and white, the stark sun shining. My parents were just babies when they became parents the same age as some of my students, their brains still developing. In most all of the pictures, there are adults, the child parents posing, the real child prop-like or off to the side. I would have also made terrible decisions if I had been a parent at that age. Who were we all before we were broken? I tell myself there was a time, a small window, where I was just a child. And in that window, there are tea roses and nasturtium, redwood trees, foggy beaches with freezing water, naked baby dolls, acrylic knits from my grandmother, and long homemade skirts, polyester pants from the Goodwill, sensible shoes, red rubber boots, a mother with braids who baked bread, too soft fruit and my face sticky with jam. 
There are times when the sunlight was warm and would stream in through the window and I would go underneath a pink and white bedspread while napping in my underwear and see a quiet, warm, and rosy place. But that space was a safe one that I found when I was old enough to already know that my body felt unsafe and full of worry outside of that blanket. There is also a time when I was 11 that I was more than just my circumstance or context. I can see it in my face in these discovered photos of me in oversized 1980s t-shirts. My school picture from that year in a green and black plaid flannel buttoned all the way up, bangs covering my eyebrows. The photos showing me that I was there all along, even if no one else saw me. Context and circumstance is not something I can dip easily back into. The time and place in that house where the photos were left was something I had never wanted to return to. I spent years there waiting for something better to come. And now here I am, 44, a mother of a five-year-old, a professor, across the country from California where I began and grew up in Rhode Island in a house I own with my husband. We have a garden that only grows small, stunted vegetables and wild perennials that the previous owner planted and I appreciate. I write things that I try to finish. This oversimplifies the present, of course. These pictures, the ones that allowed me to see myself, well, I couldn't find them for a couple of weeks. I searched the house and they seemed to have disappeared, which somehow made sense and seemed to be part of the writing of this. And then I found them and put them in an envelope, not looking at them again until I was finished writing. Knowing that while remembering, my brain will make up a new part each time, with or without the photos. Memory is unreliable, but our bodies keep accurate records. The memory my body holds is more trustworthy than the pictures my brain creates and the stories that go along with them. When I looked at the photographs for the first time, I could see me, a connection between the past and the present, one that I couldn't quite see before because she, that child me, was stuck in that time and place, locked into her circumstance. And for reasons having to do with time and space today, maybe she's not now. Maybe she's a little more free.
This is Susie, eight years old this week. This is Susie's dad. His camera is eight years old this week, too. Susie sure has changed a lot in eight years, and so have cameras. Suppose Dad had a brand new Brownie Starmatic camera. He'd get the right exposure time after time automatically. My name is Ethan Kanan, uh, and I'm talking from Berkeley, California. Uh, this is a piece called Vivian Fort Barnwell that I wrote, oh my lord, I can't even remember when, a long time ago. Vivian Fort Barnwell. I tell my wife, I'll always remember this photograph of my mother. In the photograph, my mother's out and back, hanging the blankets to dry in our backyard lines after one of our picnics, and she looks so young, the way I remember her before we moved to California. I was 10, I think. We used to have picnics out there under the water tower where my father got home from work, out and back on the grass on these big gray movers blankets. My father and the man next door had built a pool from a truck tire set in concrete, and they filled it with water for my brother and me to splash in. I remember the day this picture was taken because my mother had to hang the blankets to dry after we'd soaked them from the pool. My father was angry, but she wasn't. She was never angry at us. I haven't seen that picture in years, I tell my wife, but I do remember it. And then one day, for no reason I could fathom, my wife was looking through the old cardboard-sided valise where my mother had kept her pictures, and she says, here, is this the one you've always been talking about? And I say, yes, I can't believe you found it. And she says, those aren't movers blankets, those are some kind of leaves up in the foreground. They look like something tropical, maybe rubber leaves. She's not hanging laundry at all. I say, wait a minute, let me see that. And I laugh and say, you're right, how can that be? My whole life, I remembered that picture of her hanging those blankets after we'd soaked them. I could even remember the picnic. She says, that's funny, isn't it? I say, my mother was so beautiful then. Our own children are out back in our own yard. It's too cool here for a pool, but I built them a swing set from Redwood and I take a look out the window at them climbing it the way I've told them not to. And then a few minutes later, my wife says, wait, look at this. And she hands me the picture again, turned over. On the back, it says, Vivian, Fort Barnwell, 1931. That's not your mother at all, she says. That's your grandmother. I said, let me see that. I say, my God, you're right. How could that have happened? Thank you for giving this story voice, Ethan. It's such a tiny jewel. It's deceptively simple. All of it hinging on the way that misperception becomes our truth and then has to be rewritten. That's funny, because as they say, you're not remembering things, you're remembering your memories. You know what, Jared, I wrote this thing, you know, it was in Double Take Magazine, which I must have written this in like the late 1980s, is that possible, or early 90s? Um, so it's, it's like a, <laughs> it's like a mirror inside a mirror because the piece is about not remembering and I don't remember writing the piece. <laughs> and it's, it's also funny because as I read the piece, as I read it for the first, you know, for the first time a few days ago after you had we had arranged this. I was reading. I thought, is that even a true incident? I, I can I can picture the picture though, so I know that I do know that photograph. Right. I know that's somehow in our house, and that cardboard-sided lease I think is true. But I don't, as far as I can remember, I have no 
uh, it's possible my grandmother had been to Fort Barnwell, North Carolina. I'd never been there, so that that could still make sense. But I know, for example, that my my, my dad. The only reason I know this is that it's it's not it's not possible for my dad to have built a, a truck tire out of concrete because my dad can't change a light bulb. Okay, so let me see if I got this straight. In reflecting on your own piece, which is about confronting the way fiction and truth intertwine in memory, you yourself are no longer certain what here is a real memory. You know, I don't know what's memory and what's the desire for memory. But I kind of place myself living in Boston when I wrote that. I have no idea why. One of the reasons I have an absolutely abysmal memory for the past. I can't remember anything about the past, <clears throat> which, um, which I think helps me as a fiction writer because, mm. uh, you know, those memories are probably still in there somewhere, and they come out in fiction writing. I think I'm making it all up because I also I think I have a memory of my wife actually turning that picture over and saying something like that, which. I could easily be an invented memory, just sort of an amalgam of mm. other. You know, my wife is; she's the opposite of me. She can remember everything that's ever happened. But I kind of do. I just like have this image. It's probably made up of my wife turning over this old photograph, and I can remember actually the handwriting on the back, which I think was my mother. But I can I can remember that the handwriting, and I can remember the picture, but I cannot tell whether these are real memories. I was capable. I am capable of building a redwood swing for my kids, but I don't think I ever did. I think that's made up. But right. I can't swear. I know that the pool made of a truck tire. I mean, we might have had that, but my dad could not have built that. That's that's the only thing I can say for sure. So it's sort of an invented thing. So there's a sort of foundation of reality here, but on that is prop the storyteller's prerogative of invention. Right. And then in 20 years from now, I'll look back and say. This guy, Jared Green, did I actually talk to him or was that? And you'll be an old man at that point. You know, what's funny is that I read this piece a long time ago, probably right around the time it came out. And I've used it in classes ever since, over the years, but it took on a new meaning for me some time ago because of a similar incident that happened with my wife. So for a long time, she's had a jewelry box and in that box was a tiny photo faded sepia, dog-eared and foxed, uh, a shot of a little girl, maybe two or three, and she's outdoors in a high chair, maybe eating lunch. And I always took this for a snapshot of my wife's mother, who was born in Algeria. So every time I opened that box, I'd see this photo, and I'd think it was taken there in Algeria, and I'd marvel at the pathways that somehow led to my wife and I meeting in America and Providence, Rhode Island, of all places. And I'd think, what a treasure it is to have this photo. And then one day I mentioned it to my wife. I can't remember what I said. You know, that photo of your mother in your jewelry box, when was it taken? Something like that. And she said to me, what photo? What do you mean? I said, you know, the, the one of your mother in the jewelry box. And my wife looked at me puzzled and said, that's not my mother. I don't know who that is. I always thought that photo was yours. <laughs> so what happened to you after you realized that it wasn't? It had well, nothing to do with either of you. It was like the photograph in the frame you buy from Target. It, it, is, it basically is, but now the photograph actually stands for something else for me. In some ways, I love it more. And yet, but, it, but it's still in your consciousness. You still have somewhere in your consciousness this warm memory, the way, the way that people can transcend national boundaries to come together. That's still in there, even though the root of it has been yanked. We always say, I always say in my fiction writing classes that... Uh, 
human minds are machines for making meaning. So yeah, yeah, that's what we do. Well, it's so funny, as you get as you get older too, you realize not just memory, but actual experience, this moment experience is just so crazily subjective. Right. Even the things, even the things you, you see, and even what happened yesterday at dinner is, is highly variable. It's never the same between two people. The last line of that story, I think is really wonderful, uh, which asks such a simple question. How could that have happened? Right. But to me, that's right. one of the most generative questions for, uh, for fiction which is how do, Absolutely. how do we get here? How do we get where we get to? That is, that is, the, that is the question, yeah. Well, you know, how did, how did my life turn out like this? No, I always think, you know, my, one of my favorite forms is what people call novellas sometimes or long stories, you know, sort of, you know, 40, 50, 60 page kind of things. Right. And I actually teach, I teach a fiction writing class, in fact, I'm teaching it right now, called The 50 Year Story in which I make everybody write a story that spans at least 50 years. Oh. And it's, it's such, and it's, it's generally like the lifetime of a character, starting from young and ending up old. Right. That's just my favorite, my favorite thing, because in, in, that, in that 40 or 50 pages, you can get a, you can get a whole life. And there's, there's something, uh, something amazingly moving that happens in fiction writing. Uh, if in the blank space between scenes, uh, 10 years pass or 50 years pass. Uh, there's this incredible sort of swooping emotional effect that happens in a reader um, when you see the before and then you go immediately to the after. You know, and, that, and that's where readers make the meaning, right? That's what, right. that's what it's all about. You know, it takes two people to write a story, the writer and the reader. But what's funny is, you know, it's funny. So I, I am almost 60 now, but I still think of myself as, as kind of what I felt when I was probably, I don't even say a late teenager, like 18 or 19, maybe early 20s. And it's, you, know, you form this impression of yours. I still kind of feel myself walking through the world as this young, dark-haired guy who's never had to worry about what he had to eat and that kind of stuff. It's, not, it's just not true anymore. It's like, it's like looking at that photograph. <laughs> but you, you're able to maintain this. It's not that I actively think about it, but it's, it's just how I sense myself in the world. Something about that reminds me of an essay by George Orwell, The Lion and the Unicorn, which he wrote in 1940 when German bombs are being dropped on London and he's thinking about transformations of uh, England and English life, what might remain in the midst of all this destruction. And he, he asks, what can the England of 1940 have in common with the England of 1840? And in answer to this, he actually poses another question, uh, which is, but then what have you in common with the child of five whose photograph your mother keeps on the mantelpiece? Nothing, except that you happen to be the same person. Yeah, it's kind of a frightening to think that you are unmoored at this thing called time, which, which by the way, I think it's never been defined by physicists or anybody. I've never come up with a definition other than, I think physicists say that time is the thing that clocks measure. Well, who said that? It's a wonderful quality that prevents everything from happening at once. But you know, yeah, what What the hell is that? Where, where is that person? Where is that? Not just his cells, but his thoughts. It's gone. That's a scary, frightening thought that we're hurtling in time. And that's maybe why we like cling to things like family or nation or tribe. Sure. Because 
Otherwise, you are just hurtling, hurtling through the universe with nothing behind you that you can grab onto. We, we've certainly taken a turn for the, the metaphysically bleak. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, if you think about it, it is, it is pretty bleak. The trick is just not to think about from many sides. But the human reality is more intricate than either one. We have been looking at one invention which began pretty purely out of the conception of a need. The hope to change the person who takes pictures from a harried offstage observer into someone who is a natural part of the event. No single thread wove this invention. Not lens, not moving mirror, not film chemistry, not clever circuits. They are coordinate parts of a single strategy working together to protect and fulfill the original hope. This invention is finally a system. Call it a system of novelties. But even that is not enough. The camera enters the real world only once it is precisely manufactured in quantity. That process too reflects a civilized concern. It has its visual beauty. It rewards skill and care with immediate feedback. In the end, it links the inventors, the engineers, the workers, the distributors into one chain of craftsmanship. The user is the final link. The device helps meet the universal need to do things well. It offers, as a matter of course, a tool for supplying a rich texture to memory. More than that, thoughtful use can help reveal meaning in the flood of images which makes up so much of human life. We hope the user will fully complete the chain, gaining as much fun, as much sense of self, and as clear participation in the stream of human creativity as did Edwin Land and the team who first made SX-70.
You've been listening to the sound images of the Electro Library, a production of the Stonehill College Digital Lab. In this episode, we listen to Helga Duncan reading Wisława Szymborska's photograph from September 11. Wendy Peake read from Italo Calvino's The Adventures of a Photographer. Jared Green read Vladimir Nabokov's The Snapshot. Wanjiro Mbure quoted from John Berger. Jessica Costello read her poem To the Girl in the Photo, dated May 8, 2018. Daniel Itzkovitz read from Roland Barthes' Camera Lucida. Amro Brooks read from a short story that appeared in This Long Century. Ethan Kanan read his story, Vivian Fort Barnwell, and spoke with Jared. And throughout, we heard a variety of vintage camera ads and excerpts from a 1972 Eames Office promotional film for the Polaroid XS70 camera. For more information about the episode and contributor links, or to subscribe to the podcast, visit theelectrolibrary.org. Thank you.